Welcome to the Breaking Health Podcast, a series of discussions with the most disruptive CEOs and leaders in digital health. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Breaking Health Podcast. Hey, Steve Group of the Silas Group. How are you doing today? Good, Tom. How are you? Doing great. Doing great. And I won't need a second opinion. But if I did, ah, <laughs> you like very that good. <laughs> Our guest today, uh, Owen Tripp of Grand Rounds. It's, it's a, it, tell us about Grand Rounds. It's got a, it, this is one area we haven't covered yet uh, on the Breaking Health Podcast, getting a second doctor opinion. Yeah, getting getting second doctor opinions and getting linked to the right doctor. So, you know, the cool thing about Owen is he's one of our favorite type of guys, right? He's one of those guys that was not really a healthcare guy. <laughs> uh, and then he came into healthcare and, you know, he wants to break it. And Is he another New Yorker? I'm he's not. He's oh, not. He's, sure. a, he's, a, he's a San Fran guy, <laughs> um, Stanford. But, um, but his idea, which I, you know, look, other companies have done this in some ways, shape or form, but his idea was to, Take advantage of mobility, take advantage of the internet, take advantage of all the data that, that, that he can collect and process, and to begin to build a, a better environment for patients to find doctors and get second opinions on, on, uh, on their care. So the first instance is a second opinion. You know, if you're going to have a major go into treatment or have major surgery, everybody tells you to get a second opinion. Who do you get your second opinion from? Who do, better stated, how did you find the, the doctor that gave you the first opinion, right? Yep, yep. And I, I don't know how it works in, in Boston, but in, in New York, you know, generally some doctor tells you, you know, to go see go so-and-so. See. Mm-hmm. And, and I don't think that's a good model. I, I think there's got to be a, 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 uh, a trusted advocacy model uh, for using information that's now readily available to try to link people to the appropriately appropriate doctor for them, either for a primary uh, uh, opinion or a secondary opinion, and that's what Grand Rounds proposes to do. Um, and and they're they're using the existing insurance networks. They're using factors like close to the home. They're using practice volume, age, all sorts of indicators of quality. Uh, with the goal to try to find the appropriate physician for you. And they're selling their product uh, through employers primarily, although you can go on their website and become a member just as a consumer. Uh, but they're working with, you know, the traditional distribution channels in healthcare. And they have a mechanism to to ding docs who give uh, uh, unsound opinions? Or... <laughs> <laughs> I don't think they've got a mechanism to to do that. But I think what they, what, what they do, what they have is a lot of algorithmic, uh, processes where they try to find the doctors that would appear based on a on a lot of data that they can pull in uh, to be the right source to go to, and over time, of course, they'll be able to feed that back, right, and start to get as opposed to predictive, um, present predictive information to to consumers. Uh, they'll be able to predict, you know, provide certain information. In other words, this is what you should expect. Uh, but it's very interesting. You'll you'll see he's 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 interested in 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 measuring what patients want from the doctor, how doctors deliver relative to what was expected. A lot of the things that you would see in like a JD Powers kind of environment, he's trying to pull in. But he's also pulling in data from medical records, procedure records, and so on and so forth, so that he, he can paint a full picture of these physicians uh, and try to link the best one to the patient on an appropriate basis. All right. 
Sounds great. Anyone who wants to break healthcare is a, a friend of ours. So, Absolutely. Uh, all right. That's what we're doing here. <laughs> let's give a listen. Welcome to the Breaking Health Podcast. I'm here with Owen Tripp, the CEO of Grand Rounds. Welcome to the podcast, Owen. Good to be here. Hey, I, I want to get into this product uh, eventually, but um, it is it is my curiosity at all times to find out what make entre- what makes entrepreneurs sort of tick. It's they're they're unusual people, and uh, in your case, you know you've built up to a career as an entrepreneur in healthcare, um, coming from a couple of different directions. Uh, first question to you is, what do you think? Uh, what do you think it is that makes you want to be an entrepreneur? And then the second part of that would be what what was it about healthcare that made you want to come join this this industry and try to change things here? You know, you nailed it, Steve. I mean, entrepreneurs are strange creatures. You <laughs> kind of feel like if 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 I existed in a country which just blocked, you know, entrepreneurship. I were, if I worked in like a planned economy like the old Soviet economy, I would have been this very strange reptilian misfit that would have lived <laughs> under a rock because I just I can't, I, I kind of am constantly trying to think of ways to reinvent and improve systems and process. Um, and I think that a lot of entrepreneurs feel that way. They just see something. They, they're not always right. In fact, very often, as you know, they're, they're completely wrong, but they see things that other people don't see. And I right. think that's probably the shared characteristic between all of us. How we take action on those things is, of course, completely different, but we just see things that are different. And why did I get into healthcare? Yeah. You know, I, I, I think I had, I had done an enterprise before this, reputation.com. We were really proud of the work we did. Um, it's a good company. I felt like I wanted to um, do something I thought other people, A, hadn't taken on, and, and B, would, would generate a lot of impact. You know, right. and, and I, that, that may sound easy, but, you know, when I got into this, it's now become popular, as you know, but when I got into healthcare, um, boy, people weren't talking about this at all. Um, and it was kind of this very scary, very regulated, you know, kind of inside baseball part of the economy that that didn't sound as fun as, as building social networks or chat apps. Right, right. And um, so, yeah, it's funny. I heard a, a definition, I'll, I'll share it with you, of what, of, of there's, there's sort of two types of entrepreneurs, right? The one type of entrepreneur is just someone that, that, that understands a need and is able to create a company around that need and do it a little bit better than somebody else, right? And uh, they, get, they get the whole company sort of working for them. And that can be anything. I, I mean, my, I come from a family where my father started his own contracting company. He was technically an entrepreneur, right? He was on his yeah. own. He was out there. Yeah. And, and yeah. The, second, the second type of entrepreneur is this, this person that sort of sees something that isn't happening that they feel should be happening. Yep. And there then the, the the magic behind that is to be able to convey to people like me and others uh that would back you, stake you if you will, that this thing that you're seeing is is unique and, and plausible. So um take me through Yeah, take me through when this the light bulb went on. You know, like when did you see this thing and how did you convince people it was plausible? So uh to be completely fair, I didn't do this all by myself. Yeah. This was uh, this is a joint effort, as I think most of the great projects are. I mean, I'm not saying yeah. we're yet a great project, but but we'd like to think we have the chance to be. And it started um, rather simply over some coffee and pastry uh, at a at a cafe on the Stanford campus, where um, my co-founder, or the guy who would soon become my co-founder, um, Dr. Rusty Hoffman, kind of walked me through 
how much of a pain in the tail it was to be an expert as he is in a particular area. So he's an expert in blood clots that form in your legs. And he just gets swamped. I mean, the guy gets requests every single day. Dr. Hoffman, please, won't you help me look at my case? And he has no really easy way to look at these requests that are coming over the transom from all around the world. And even if he did have a process by which he would organize those things, he's not going to get paid for it. And generally speaking, it's not going to even be compliant with his state, you know, state uh, medical license here in California. And so he was walking me through this, and he had this idea in mind of, could we devise a workflow and a compliance structure that would allow us to do it? And it was interesting, but the bigger play, in my opinion, was, you know, hey, there are all these experts out there. They want to help people. Can we organize these and, you know, in some, organize these guys into some league of, of, of superpower doctors and create, you know, better outcomes for everybody else? It was started really that simply. We, of course, had no idea what we were going to do with that, but it was just this kind of compelling flash of something that felt like an untapped opportunity. That's really where it started. Awesome. Awesome. So uh, is Rusty still with the company? Is he still there? He, he, he is. So he, um, so I'm going to just say in case somebody from Stanford Hospital and Clinics and Stanford Medical School is listening, he spends exactly 20% of his time, no more, no less, on <laughs> Grand Rounds. Um, and uh, exactly. and uh, I think critically to his patients who see him at Stanford, he is the chair of interventional radiology or, or chief of interventional radiology, rather. And uh, still, still sees people from all around the world. So this is, you know, he's kind of given up. He was doing device development and other research projects, and he's he's given that up uh, to to kind of give us his time. But he's part time. Cool. And and what year was this that you guys uh, started to, had your pastries and <laughs> pastry and coffee? Yeah. Um, by the way, the Jerry Seinfeld uh, comedian's car just going to put in a plug um, over <laughs> coffee. It's unbelievable. It is add it to your watch list. Um, but the uh, the, this all started in kind of late 2012, early 2013. Okay, so that's so you're three or four years years yeah. after your idea, and frankly, you know, you've got had some some pretty great success on the capital raising side, right? You've brought in, I guess, Greylock and 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 Venrock, two wonderful VCs. Um, last count, you know, you've raised 100 million plus, right, for the company? Yep. Yeah, we we raised from. Uh, Greylock, Venrock, and uh, and Blackrock. I guess I can okay. now confirm that you're getting the scoop. We never publicly confirmed that until now, Steve. You've broken <laughs> down our our walls. But yes, yeah, scoop. we had a mutual fund invest last year. Scoop Krupa. That's what uh, Tom calls me. <laughs> I, I have, I'm so like uh, I, I, you know ravaging. I get all the data from everybody. You can't get one over on me. Yeah, uh, exactly. You just <laughs> dig and dig and dig until we say, okay, you got me. You got me. Well, um, let's do this. So, so tell me when you first talked to these guys, right? And and who was the first ones in? Who was who was your first uh, VC? So, the, so, so actually, I want to do justice. The very first guy in, uh, his name is Michael Deering. He he was the guy actually who originally introduced me and Rusty. He is the uh, kind of owner, principal, uh, lead investor at an angel fund called Harrison Metal, which okay. has done really well. They've invested in a whole bunch of companies, mostly in consumer. Uh, Michael was a mentor. And, and, and actually way up the chain of mine uh, at eBay. And so that's how I knew him. Um, and we got together uh, and, and just started hashing this out. And then after that, we had our first kind of quote-unquote real healthcare investor in Brian Roberts and, and, and Bob Kocher at Benrock. Sure. sure. So tell me, what did you tell uh, Michael? 
you know, that first check, man, is the is the hard check, right? To get to get the to get it's the thing true. going. It's so true. what did you tell them you were going to be when when you got yes. the right check? So I got I got to tell you two things about this, which is what did we tell him? And then interestingly, because I think this would be interesting to your listeners, like what was the conversation with him after we decided that we really needed to talk to a healthcare investor next? But let me. So Michael is a consumer investor. He's invested in you know, health, food delivery companies and transportation companies and, and messaging apps and kind of the full suite very successfully in consumer. And for Michael, this was just another consumer story. It was how do we take, you know, this high unit cost, very emotionally laden transaction around getting people high quality care that can change the trajectory of their life? And how could we do it over the internet? And it was, and I don't want to overly simplify it, but it was like, hey, here's this huge economic opportunity. Nobody's yet cracked the nut on connecting with doctors across the internet. At the, at the time, really, the telehealth plays were still, still nascent. And look, we think this will, this, we think we're going to focus on just the most complex of complex so that, this, so that we can really charge it up emotionally and we can do great work and we can bring the best of American medicine in front of these people. And we have this ace in the hole in Rusty who knows all the experts and we'll just kind of build it from there and we'll make it a, make it an invite only panel and so on and so forth. And he was really, he was subscribed to that and he helped us a lot with go to market and thinking about uh, how to, how to get that in front of different consumer audiences. And we actually worked out of his office for, for over a year. Um, I remember when we ultimately did raise from Benrock, we were still in his office and he would literally leave, you know, the San Francisco Chronicle, the actual print edition of the San Francisco Chronicle, we have the classified section showing office space available outside of his <laughs> office, and he would circle it in red. It was kind of like having my parents be like, hey, dude, you got to get out of here. Time to uh, move out of the basement, buddy. <laughs> exactly. He wouldn't talk to me about it. I would just I would just show up, and in my little part on the table, there would be that newspaper. Uh, um, but, but interestingly, we did go on, and we raised from Venrock, and I think that you know one of the things that was uh, – a very, very interesting moment. Michael was used to telling Michael, you know, a lot of his deals, the next round goes to places like Sequoia or Excel or Kleiner or whatever. Benrock was, Benrock is a great fund and consumer, but they're, they're not as well known, I think, in consumer. And so I had this whole conversation with him about how I thought in this next round that we really needed to bring healthcare investing expertise on the board. And my sense around that was mostly that there was just a lot of stuff I didn't know as a consumer internet guy. And I thought I would up our odds of success if I brought in some, some bench and expertise. And I got to tell you, that has been one of the better decisions we've made. Mm-hmm. Um, not just because the Venrock guys are strong, which they are, but because I think for any digital health investor or a digital health entrepreneur, especially those of us who don't come with decades of background on these topics, you really want your board to appreciate the c- complexity and the difficulties that are unique to healthcare. Right. Because if they don't get that, the first time you need to come and explain, you know, how state laws work and medical licensure works or how, you know, how insurance carriers take a really long time to make decisions or any of these things, you know, you're you're kind of the CEO, you're you're at some risk if sure. the people don't really fundamentally understand your industry. So that turned out to be a good choice. Yeah. I mean, I think that, uh, I think healthcare is unusual. And I think what, what, uh, is happening from my perspective, which is cool 
right? Is there's for the first time because a lot of these guys, you know, you, you mentioned some of the brand names in BC. They 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 left healthcare ten years yeah. ago, and they were That's right. they were not yeah. going to look. Now, of course, some of them stayed in the biotech space for good reasons, but but generally they were sort of like we're we're going to just focus on on you know building network models in, in different in, in a lot easier yep. industries than healthcare. Yeah, um, and you know they're they're now coming back, and there's sort of a, a merger of expertise between the guys that stuck it out and are, were doing healthcare for a long time, and people that are coming in with a lot of cool ideas about how to how to get consumers to respond to design issues mm-hmm. and user experiences and, yep. and all that stuff. At the same time, realizing that it's not going to be easy to sort of get the distribution to people to use their product. Uh, in in a healthcare system that's in, you know in the middle of really adopting technology for the first time, for what I can well, tell. let me let me let me say something about that because you raised a really interesting point just a minute ago. I mean, it's true. Greylock, just take them as an example. They had not only been active but quite successful in biotech and healthcare earlier in an earlier epoch, right? But entrepreneurs are kind of definitionally and frankly for their own self-preservation, not students of history. Meaning we don't look back at the lessons of what didn't work out because if we did that, we would just never do anything new because we would, you know, we would be fully risk aware. And, and so I had no, I mean, it's embarrassing, but I had no knowledge of their track record or even the players, uh, you know, at places like Greylock until I ended up sitting down for breakfast with a guy like Bill Hellman, who's, you know, hugely successful. Um, at a different time and at a different speed. Um, had I been more aware of that, I probably would have asked the firm different questions just to really understand and evaluate how committed to this space are you guys? Because you want to know not only that your partner is committed to it, but that the firm is committed to it. Because, well, you don't want to end, uh, end up on the outside of that, you know, strategy. It just, it just, it's a cold place to be. Yeah, absolutely. So let's go, let's get into the business. Give me the mission and the products. Let's let's just sort of lay some stuff out there for people in terms of what you're doing. Yeah. So the mission I think is very straightforward and, and, you know, universally understood, which is at some point, all of us, usually somebody we care about before ourselves, but ultimately ourselves get sick and get sick in a scary way. And the American system has uh, bountiful, um, expert, real, um, real expertise, real science in a lot of different places. We just don't know how to access it. And so when, you know, Grand Round's promise is simple. When you get sick and you are not fully aware of your options and you want to be fully aware and you want to have access to the type of expertise that only medical insiders historically have gotten, then we're going to provide it to you. And everything we've done, every product we've built, every data that we've created uh, uh, is in support of that mission. Well, that's cool. So when you when you describe, you're going to have access to that, right? So, yep. Um, I think that my observation about the healthcare system being an investor in it, being a participant in it, when I need to see a doctor, either for me or my kids or some other family member, is is that it's not a very easy system to access, especially right. when you really need it, right? So, yep. what is it about what you're doing that changes that? So, um, a few things. One kind of our, to, to kind of understand the product philosophy, where we've invested time um, versus other companies that, that you know, uh, because there's a lot of ways to think about nat- navigation and advocacy and, uh, and connecting better with the system. Where we've really invested our time is in that patient 
to physician relationship because we really think that all of the activities, all of the decisions, all the money, frankly, is driven out of that relationship. And so we've zeroed in on a couple questions. How do we make that relationship easier and best match easier to find? How do we make sure that it is the empirically correct match, uh, which is a whole problem set onto itself. I'd be glad to tell you about it. Mm-hmm. And then how do we make sure that, that that match is set up to deliver results that are that are top shelf, you know, among among the best results that that patient could expect to achieve anywhere in the world, given given a condition or a diagnosis, and uh, and then and then from there, you know, kind of from that perspective, the the product portfolio expands out. So how do we do it? It um, it's things like medical expert opinions. Um, mm-hmm. You know that we were not the first to think about that. We do think that we have been the most patient centric, design oriented way of doing that. Certainly the fastest as well. Uh, we have thought about, um, medical visits. So what does it mean to go to a doctor? How can we make that happen faster? How we can back that with a whole bunch of data to give both the patient and the physician confidence that that is the best match. And then how do we drive real value and adherence and long-term follow-up after that, that initial relationship has been formed. And it's really those things that, that we've invested in. And then, uh, you know, along the way we've had to build out a provider strategy to support doing that really, really well. Yeah, so let's let's start with the first one, which, you know, is it is a known idea, I guess, but nobody's ever done it really well. Um it's the it's the second it's the second opinion uh product. So did you build a, a network of special specialists that would be available to the users of the service? Is that is that was that the first step in, in creating that product? Yeah, exactly. The very first thing we did was uh we built we went out and recruited Using, frankly, Rusty's connections, because as I said, he, he's a well-trained interventional radiologist, spent his entire career at Hopkins and Stanford. He can treat a lot of things, but his real sweet spot is in DVT, and, uh, and he is a, he's, a, he's pretty amazing technically at what he can do with DVT. And so he's known to the expert community as that guy, and so initially we just recruited from the people he knew. Mm-hmm. Uh, eventually, we had to come up with a more scalable mechanism for that, but that's how we started. and. Um, and you know, Steve, I didn't have the kind of, I, I wasn't hindered by the, the pre-existing companies that were thinking about this. Sure. In fact, I was, I wasn't even really aware of them until we were <laughs> about a year into the campaign. It's fine. And it's so, good. That's good. It was actually, yeah, I was going to tell you, it turned out to be good because we did things completely differently. So for example, you know, just talking about one, uh, one piece of the product experience. So one of the things we do for everybody that signs up for Grand Rounds, we think we're actually the the company that does this more often than any other company in the world now is we'll go and collect all of your medical records, all of your images, all of your kind of tests and, and physician notes along the way. And historically, the way this, is, this had been done was you'd call the 1-800 number. They would send you out a form either by mail or, or email it to you. You, the patient, would then need to print it out. In some cases, you'd have to have it notarized. You'd sign the, you know, the records release. Then you'd have to go find a fax machine, send it back in. And then they would copy it, send it out via paper mail or FedEx to a bunch of other places requesting records. I mean, what a mess. And then, you know, 30 to 40 days later, you could start the case because <laughs> nothing's actually happened medically yet. You could actually start the case because the records would have arrived. We just, we just designed it completely differently. We intelligently knew where all your records locations would be based on looking at your claims. So we'd get all the claims, uh, medical claims that would show the doctors that you'd seen. So you didn't have to guess 
which doctors had treated, you would say, hey, we're going to go collect records from these locations. We used modern e-signing technology, so people would just sign with their finger on an iPad, an iPhone, or, or uh, draw it on the computer. We would automatically register that. We would transmit it electronically. We fashioned uh, records deals with a bunch of different clinics and major provider systems around the country so that we could get records in a couple of days. That was transformative for the quality of the opinion product that you could deliver. Uh, and that's just one small piece. But when you started from the design and experience that the user wanted, um, you ended up in a better place. And you know, my team here is probably half healthcare and half Facebook, Google, um, Pinterest, uh, Uber, so on and so forth. It's just people who who have grown up in a time where, you know, user design is everything. Right. Right. Hi, everyone. Tom here. Just uh, part of the interruption while I remind you to go to healthogy.com. That's the word health, followed by the letters E-G-Y, little period, and then C-O-M. Healthogy.com. Sign up for the Breaking Health newsletter. It'll get you this podcast. It'll get you videos and interviews from our events and our uh, original written content as well. Go to healthagic.com to sign up for the Breaking Health newsletter. And now let's get back to this conversation. So take me through, if I sign up, uh, I, I, how, how, does, how does the product work? You sell it to my, my employer, is that right? So can I, can I just access it and pay for it online too? Or do I have to be part you of it? You actually, you can. So okay. there are... Um, See, so you can, you could, here's the three ways you could access it if you're just, uh, you know, you're kind of out there and you're looking for great care. You could access it directly at Grand Rounds, and we have a consumer, um, you know, point of sale system. You start a, you start a membership right there and away you go with your credit card. You could, um, you could get it from your employer, which is what the majority of people do. And, and it's completely free to the end user in that, in that scenario. And then the third way, which not a lot of people know about us, but, but is something we're really proud of and we've been accelerating on, is actually delivering this capability through provider systems. So if a provider wants to stand up the Grand Rounds experience, um, you can actually go directly to their website. So, for example, if you went to Boston Children's Hospital, mm -hmm. you know, leading pediatric hospital in Boston, right there on the homepage, you can actually start a consult, and that's Grand Rounds as well. Um, and so, uh, so there's kind of three, three doors in. And and so how so when I get in what happens I have to disclose my condition what, what how does it how does that how does it feel It depends on what you're looking for so we talked a little bit a minute ago about the opinion but if you were just looking to see a doctor and you wanted to get access to you know a premier institution and you wanted that place to not only set the appointment for you but you know have your medical records ahead of time have that doctor uh, you know, um, empirically chosen for their success on your particular thing, then we'll do that work for you. We'll set up the appointment. We'll validate your insurance. We'll send the medical records ahead of time. Right on our app, we'll post up some questions for you to ask the doctor. We'll allow you to take notes during the appointment into the app if you want or record the appointment into the app uh, for, your, for, for your review later. Uh, and then we'll pull your medical records after that visit so you have this kind of nice longitudinal history of all the things that you've done um, on that particular question. So that's what we call Grand Rounds Office Visit. Um, and it's just our, you know, the, the improvement we wanted to make on how this stuff ought to work. Um, so we'll, um, really the core there though, for the, the person who's paying for it, the employer is, they like the concierge features for, for just their general membership happiness. Mm -hmm. But what they really like is that in the background there, we're picking that doctor 
based on you know really deep research and a whole bunch of data about that that physician's actual ability to deliver uh, against the stated need of the patient. Okay, I want to get into that piece of it in a second, but I just want to just take a step back. So, if um, <clears throat> let's just do uh, let's do the second opinion. If I come in and say I want to uh, get a second opinion, am I am I getting so you know? I'm assuming what my health who my health insurer is, right? Or yep. Uh, presumably, and you know then what the provider network is around that insurer. Mm -hmm. So does your, mm -hmm. does your software then self-select inside of that network so I don't have to go out of network for my second opinion? Exactly, yep. Okay. Yep, yep. and we're going to do things like keep running data on uh, provider availability. So, um, you know, this is something we're working really hard on right now. Actually, I'm giving you kind of a coming attraction mm -hmm. uh, note. But, you know, one of the things is if you're a patient, you want to know, that that doctor is going to be not only well-selected for what you need, but that they're going to take your insurance, so you're not going to put them at some sort of financial risk, that they're nearby, mm -hmm. which is like another thing we can do in the internet age, right? We can use geolocation, and that they're available, because what a drag to be told that, you know, there's some, you know, there's a perfect person for you in the universe, but they're not available for four months. Right. Um, and that has, that happens, and I think we've all probably had that experience, and by and large, we can deliver a really terrific experience without having to deal with that. So, it, it, the of course, everybody wants to see the best doctor, right? Yeah. Sort of uh, in that line. And and like any other professional profession, there's a bell curve, right? Uh, there's bad doctors, there's good doctors, there's average doctors. What, what are you doing algorithmically to weed out the best, not weed out, but to extract out the best doctors? What happens? I mean, what? In, yeah. in, in your algorithm to, to be able yeah. to, because I'm, what first thing that comes to mind is, well, shit, I mean, we're just going to have 10% of the doctors see everybody. Let's not call them the best doctors. Let's call <laughs> them the top, let's call them the top physicians for okay, the purpose yeah, of this I'm, conversation. All right, that's fine. So, so we'll <laughs> rewind it back. We, we'll, we'll have, uh, the, the highest rated doctors will see yeah. everybody, right? No, but, but you're all joking so, aside. You're pointing to an important. You're actually yeah. pointing to an important thing yeah. that we a, a mindset that we actually would be eager to change. So, so there, I don't. I think there is no such thing as the mythical top doctor in the world for right. anything. Okay. There's what there are are people who are better, who have generated better results, who have spent more time, have more experience, have better communication skills for the specific needs of the patient at a given moment. But that top doctor needs to be picked not only with an eye towards, you know, the kind of quantitative data that supports that person's selection, but for the patient needs. And this is a more complex question than I think we often like to discuss. That patient may um, prefer a certain kind of doctor, gender, age, so on and so forth, but they might also, their willingness to travel um, may be really highly sensitive to their personal needs. How much, you know, how much money do they make? What are their child, you know, care responsibilities, so on and so forth. And I think we have to own this conversation a little bit more across the entire healthcare spectrum, including, yep. and maybe more importantly, in Medicare, Medicaid space. And so for us, we're really endeavoring to pick that best match. So what are the ingredients that go into that? Um, there are about 42 different things that we look at that are that bear some um, weighting in the overall kind of algorithmic output. Um, I'll give you an example. Right, we look at volume, um, and volume is something that a lot of people who are 
who are, you know, understand healthcare at some level talk about, well, you want the guy who does more knees than anybody else in New York. Well, really, do you want that guy? Because actually that guy, I mean, that might be the right choice. Right. But if he's doing, if he's doing knee surgery on 100% of patients that present with a possible surgical need, and he's never exercising discretion as to whether surgery is appropriate, then actually you don't want that guy. And you might, prefer a, you might prefer somebody who's significantly lower volume. And we see that. Orthopedics is a particularly troubling area for that, but we see that across the spectrum. We see people who are using specialty pharmaceuticals you know, at five or six times the recommended manufacturer's guidelines or the national averages. And those people may not necessarily, you know, they may look high volume on a particular approach, but that's actually a very expensive approach, which is doing nothing for the patient that might bear its own toxicity. Mm-hmm. So, so you have to kind of be open-eyed to that. In volume, we go really deep and we index across the, the population. So what is a, you know, we try to risk stratify across the patient population, but we also look at it within each subspecialty. So you know, the question of volume is really going to be different whether, you know, if you look at neurosurgery, there, there, you know, there are very few truly high, high volume places or even more so lung transplant, very, very few high volume places. So you have to understand, you have to weight volume differently in that subspecialty than you might in other ones. Makes sense. I, I, it's funny, the, um, I'll make an observation and then I'll let you, you sort of comment on this. The, one of the things that has happened by virtue of the internet and social networking, right, is there's been a breakdown in the traditional trusted sources. Does, do you follow what I'm saying? You and I got mm-hmm. on, the, on the phone, we were talking, and we ended up talking about podcasts, and we ended up talking about music. And right. uh, You knew I was a music fan, so you said, well, what, what are you listening to? So I was, to some extent, a trusted source in that mm-hmm. discussion. Um, much in the same way, say, the New York Times is, is a trusted source in terms of its reviews of Broadway musical, right? Sure. But, and, but the, the internet has sort of just ripped that to pieces. Now anybody can you know, go on Yelp or on Facebook or in any other place or on Amazon and post their star rating and write a review mm-hmm. on something. And my view of that is, is in the general world outside of healthcare that, that, that the internet has served to probably offer more confusion than sort of co- uh, coalescence around being able to identify appropriateness when you're looking for product services, entertainment value, yep. et cetera. And yep. in the healthcare field, I would also make a statement that the good news is, is nobody's ever really tried to do this in any significant way because the way you get a referral, at least in New York City where I'm at, right, and, and I'm fortunate enough to know more doctors than most people, is they're like, well, you know, Joe is the head of neurosurgery at yeah. Wild Cornell. And right. like if he got that job, He's got to be a badass doctor, right? So <laughs> right. he's the guy I'm going to tell. I'm going to make kind of happen to just know Joe, and he'll yeah. he'll, he'll get and I'll get you in, right? So yep. it, it sounds like you're sort of trying to knock the cover off that ball, so to speak, to say, let's <laughs> let's actually go out and find out really if Joe's any good, right? Exactly. Yeah. For the, exactly for the, circum- right. for the circumstances at hand, as opposed well, to there, any good generally, but for the circumstances at hand, and, and I'll well, let you finish that that thought. No, you're. No, you're exactly right. And there, there are probably two things I'd say about this generally. One is the kind of fun serendipity and link, probably the only link between, you know, my first company and this company is that at reputation.com, we were, you know, brutally aware of how misleading online sources were and how easily they could be gamed like star ratings and things like that. 
um, in fact, pretty interesting science about just the natural kind of psychographic tendency to post a review or not post a review and kind of what that, you know, how that influenced the decision making of somebody who's thinking about buying a service, right? Um, dentistry, where we spent a lot of time researching, I don't want to go on and on about this, but mm -hmm. it was just brutal when you really dug into it, understanding, you know, I, I forget what our survey said, but it was something like 30 to 40% of dentists admitted that they had posted or encouraged somebody else to post a review on a competitive dentist profile. <laughs> Isn't that shocking? It's I mean, it's probably not mean. that shocking, <laughs> but it's terrifying. And so, and so, you know, there, there's just a skew in it. And then when you revert to the medical situation or you look at the medical situation, what you find is that, you know, patient level satisfaction reviews are really imperfect indications. Oh. And, uh, you know, Stanford had a, had a great paper that showed that actually in general surgery, among some of their general surgeons, the surgical kind of outcomes from a safety perspective, so looking at things like infection rates and mortality and so on and so forth, the, the actually the better physicians, the better surgeons had lower ratings on Yelp. Mm -hmm. And the worst physicians had higher ratings. And that's, you know, that's terrifying, right? So that is, you're exactly right, yeah. an imperfect data source. So we try to look at it and we try to look at it highly contextually. So so in your, you know, you use an interesting example. Is the chair of neurosurgery indeed the greatest um, technical neurosurgeon, or is that person just a really terrific leader of the department? Right. <laughs> right. Right. And they may be celebrated for their expertise, but how do we know that that's even the person you'd want to see? Um, oftentimes, a grand announcement perspective on that is that that's the person who should review and write your opinion. But when it comes to actually, you know opening your cranium, you might want somebody who is a little bit earlier in their career. It turns out that in neurosurgery, you actually see it, one of the things we look at is age, years of experience, and you see a decay on performance, not surprisingly, as you get older. Um, and it, it, you get, you kind of, there's a sweet spot, which seems to be in the late 40s for these things. Um, so, but, that, but that's right. Nobody's really, I mean, we live in a special time around data liberation. I don't think anybody's historically had the access to the data, let alone the interest in evaluating it to truly, to truly try to come up with a, a rational answer and a rational match on these things. So it sounds like and it, at, the, at the end of the day, you're, you're going to have various different parameters that get, get put into your algorithms. You've measured as much as you can measure and interpret about these physicians. And so it's not like you're going to have you know, 10 of the smartest neuroscience doctors in the country available to give second opinion, but rather you're going to have a full suite of network uh, availability and you're going to try to assign a physician or a set of physician choices for physicians uh, to a member, I'm calling them a member, um, yep. you know, based on the set of circumstances that they present to you. Is that exactly is right? That's exactly right. And it's, I think it's a good distillation because I think what we need to move away from is, oh, the guy is yeah. at Mayo and I need to fly to Rochester. There, there will be times where that's appropriate, but the fact is that's a very small percentage of the overall yeah. medical needs in this country. And yet we take this orientation of finding the guy or the gal every time. So how, how big is the network today? How many members are you serving? And, uh, so, and, I'll, and I'll ask a couple questions. Um, Shockingly, I should know the answer to that question, and I don't. <laughs> We're in the middle of sales season. We're adding a bunch. Um, millions is the answer on the number of members. And, uh, and we're up to, I think, 54, 55 enterprise, you know, super large uh, customers. Uh -huh. 
on the on the enterprise side, and um, and on the provider network, we have doctors at 80 different institutions and licensed to actually practice with those institutions. So we've done a lot of work relatively quietly in really securing our position and, and giving giving those provider systems not only a great tool to use, but actually the confidence that they're maybe for the first time in their career working with a partner who's actually taught through things like security and compliance and usability and design. And you're, um, I'm assuming you're charging like a PMPM fee to your customers. Is that, is yeah. that a good assumption? Yeah, exactly right. Yeah, exactly right. Although I'll tell you, and this is probably maybe, maybe, maybe this is the hook I can dangle to get invited back to the podcast. But <laughs> I, I, I think the PEPM needs to die. I yeah. think we as a vendor community need to better organize and do better pricing work around the value we're actually creating. I think the good news is for Grand Rounds, um, we feel like we understand how to do that. Right. Um, we're not going to be able to move on that immediately, but but long term, I, I really would like to see more performance orientation on how we're charging for stuff. Yeah, it's interesting. the The problem is the actuarial firms and the underwriters; they speak in that language. It's very hard to get them to stop. Very hard. To get yes, them we need to take them out and massively brainwash all of them and retrain them. But yes, it's it's true. It will be hard. I mean, I think that you asked me at the start, you know, what was it like to come into healthcare? I think that. So, you know, entrepreneurs and Silicon Valley entrepreneurs in particular have this kind of um, uh, hubris about being able to lean into problems and move the world. Yeah. And in a lot of technology scaling, you can just do that. But this is a big industry. We're taking the approach of we want to be, we want to show better and better every day. But we know that, you know, we're not going to wake up one morning and realize that we've complete, completely changed the hearts and the minds of everybody overnight. Well, you know, it's, I'll, 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 I'll share this with you. There, there was a lot of, orientation around risk sharing uh, in the disease management era, which was before you got into this, okay? And what, what ended up happening is, is so you'd go and you say, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to find all of your just the heart failure members, and we're going to perform disease management tasks on them. And as a result, we should be able to reduce their utilization and their costs and improve their care and so on uh-huh. and so forth, right? And in exchange for that, we're going to use what you're currently paying for them as our baseline, and then w- whatever we save you, we take a percentage of the savings, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The, that model, of, of course, ultimately collapses on itself because what happens next year? How do I pay you the year after that? How do mm-hmm. I pay you the yeah, year after right. that? So yeah. if, if eventually what you've done is you've optimized the care for that subset of patients, at, at that very same moment, you basically run out of revenue for your business. And, and of course, any good customer is going to say, well, I want more, I want more. Um, and that's, that's why yeah. a lot of people backed away over the years uh, from that model, at least from what I can tell. And, and, and as an investor, frankly, it's, it's a model that worries me when I hear someone counting on something like that. Um, it, has, it has a kind of academic or intellectual purity to it, though, doesn't it? Well, I mean, sure. that, that it should work that way? It should work that way. But I would, <clears throat> I'd come back and I'd say to you, and this was really my next question, which um, is presumably you're going to create a feedback mechanism where you're going to be able to evaluate when you've placed the person in the care, into, into a care situation with a doctor, you're going to evaluate how it went, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. And you know, obviously one of the components to how, the, how it went is going to be how much did it cost. Um, there's an obsession right now at CMS about how much things cost, right? Bundled right. payments yep. is one of those obsessions. Um, are you working on on building that type of a feedback mechanism, or is it in place today? And and if it is, how's it going? So it's in place today, and that's kind of what we mean when we talk about performance. I think 
what's nice about this specific opportunity versus other opportunities, even just narrowly looking at the employer context, right? Our opportunity is it's, there's a there's a refreshingly crisp way of thinking about where ROI comes from. You know, we have a case. We know what the patient was experiencing before we got involved. We know their total claims before we got involved. And then we can put forward a new approach. That approach will have an adherence rates attached to it. And then we just look at the claims afterwards. And mm-hmm. kind of if you just, frankly, if you multiply out all those numbers, that's how you get to your ROI. And that's why I think there's not as much of a slippery slope on this particular implementation. Yeah. But, but generally, I agree with you on the whole value approach. What I'll tell you is troubling for us, and maybe as advice for anybody who's listening who's thinking about starting a company in this space, is that where, where our good ideas and pricing models collide with reality is that employers don't generally budget for these things that way. Like, they need to know how much it's going to cost on a fixed basis so that they can tell their CFO, here's how much it costs. And to say, hey, like, we're going to win together, and but there's an uncapped budget around how much is used or how much we save, that, that's, a, that's, a, that's a meddlesome problem. It, it is um, the good news. First of all, God bless them because they're the employers and CMS are the two experiment experimenters yeah. in this industry. The, yeah, the providers exactly and, right. the, and the health insurance companies they, they get dragged along for the ride, but mm-hmm. they don't do a lot of experimentation. I'm, I'm You're right. hoping that's going to change. I think they owe it to us to change in that regard. Um, but the other thing is, is, is they will do anything to bend Trent, the employers, because yeah. they're getting crushed. Yeah, uh, and so if you're able to go in and say this is not only going to be because you know they're all increasing their deductibles, they're all cost shifting to their employees, and if you can say say to them, yeah, you just you just increased your deductible and your copays, yeah. but you know here's a great here's a great service that you can put in front of your employees, and oh, and oh by the way, our expectation is it'll help bend the trend. Yep, they will hopefully try it eventually. In in well, in, and in, I think in some it, sales cycle that's less than three years, right? Yep. And I, I don't know if this is good news or bad news, depending on your perspective, you can pick it. But I think we have actually, you know, the employers are, are have a lot of appetite for this. And they have a lot of appetite despite a relatively low inflation rate and healthcare costs over the last few years. And I think that's about to change. I think yeah. all the stuff I read suggests that there's there's a lot of pent-up demand. A lot of that's, you know, kind of short-term plan design changes. But I think that they're about to take it in the kisser yep. on trend over the next few years, which presents a really interesting opportunity for companies like mine and others just to help help them get it right without compromising the quality of care that they want to deliver, right? We, can, we actually yep. can, we can deliver a superior, more empathetic, more high-quality product um, and help them reduce costs. So uh, last piece of the product was the adherence piece. So you, are you, is that in place as well? So you are you working with doctors and patients to get them to behave themselves when they get after they get their treatment or while they're in, in the process of getting their treatment? We do. We do. Although I would say that this, if, the, if you look at, you know, we do. And we, we chart to about an 84% rate of adherence to the opinion. So if we tell you, hey, Steve, you know, we looked at this thing. We actually think this therapeutic path is better for you. Here are the steps we want you to follow. We find out that about 84% of people actually follow on that, which feels terrific. Um, I don't know how that compares in your book of business. What I'd say, oh though, God. is... No, nobody uh, what I'd say, that's, Well, that's so, so, but remember, we're not working with the chronic wellness people. Right. So we're working with people who have, can, who have cancer, who have severe issues, and so they're going to be naturally more biased towards action and, and the correct action on this stuff. 
long term, I think we have to figure out a more sustainable way of doing that. We do that in a very position-led model today. It can be very costly, frankly, to deliver it that way. I I would like to think about, you know, you've interviewed Tom Spann and the gang at Accolade. Sure. There, are, there are other partners out there who we work with on employer accounts today who, who do that work and do it really well. Um, so we're trying to, you know, we're going to try to figure out our long-term position there. Terrific. Um, I'm speaking with Owen Tripp, CEO of Grand Rounds. I got it couple more minutes left if you're if you're up for it um sure let's let's step away from the product sounds great and you know i'm looking forward to sort of uh uh checking it out myself at some point is um what last sort of the last batch of questions i like to ask entrepreneurs are are about twofold two two subjects first you know competitive advantage all that michael porter stuff that we studied Mm -hmm. back at business school um, so let's let's start there, and, and the last piece will be about culture. I'll I'll step I'll I'll I'll, uh, I'll get to that. Um, this idea is pretty unique, right? I think that honestly, the way I look look at it is the way you've pulled the three pieces together is is differentiated from my perspective. But when you think about the the competitive landscape, and not to name your competitors, but when you think about how you're differentiating yourself and how you're positioning yourself for competitive advantage what are the what are your um what are your views on where you need to take the company and its strategy yeah uh good question i mean as you know very well we were not the first people to ever think about this idea um and uh and frankly i will tell you that of my competitors i think all of them are the ones i the ones that have any level of skill in this i think deliver fundamentally a good review of care from a doctor who generally knows more than your local doctor does so I think our, our basis of competition is actually not there. Uh, I think a lot of people can do that well. I think we compete heavily on the experience. So you just take somebody who's thinking about a shoulder surgery. If that recommendation comes back to them, um, and it's written, first of all, to their doctor, not to them as a patient, which is the decision that some of our competitors have made, but, but more importantly, it comes back to them you know, five weeks after they request it or six weeks after they request it, they may have already pushed through with the first plan that they had because they're in pain. They need to get something done. That, that's a failure, right? That's not a good product. If we're able to deliver that product in a few days or a week, um, then you're actually relevant to that patient's journey. So I think everything we do here, we're obsessive about the details of the experience, and we don't design from the perspective of what's been done in healthcare before. In fact, that's a dirty phrase, mm-hmm. right? If we, if we, you know, we have a kind of, we throw the yellow flag in any meeting here where we're like, well, I know that the way that fill in the blank company does it is this. Um, we're just like, that's, that's BS, right? Um, right. Let's, let's do it the way we want to do it. And if we had the opportunity, none of us would have designed it the way that it ended up. Um, that's one thing. I think the second thing and potentially the more enduring approach here is just we're, um, we're really passionate about the data that underlies all these systems. So as our network scales, as we interact more heavily on the provider side, as we interact more heavily on the, the, the patient side, and we have more of those lives in the United States relying on us for this sort of care. We go from less of that predictive physician quality approach that I described to you before, where we're studying things like volume and training and experience and outcomes, and we move to truly like a, hey, this guy, here are the results. This is, we know this because we've sent him X number of patients and we've tracked those patients for a period of time. We know that that person performs on this type of case. And we know that they don't perform as well in other sorts of cases. That is 
huge. That makes the yeah. second opinion market look like look like fiddlesticks. Yeah. And and so so if you want to know where we're going, that that's where we're going. It's just making sure we get that right, that we deliver that service passionately, um, but do it in a way that's backed by data that that is that is on the platform. Yeah, moving from prediction to some level of certainty, right? You got it. That's right. That's 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 what we're supposed to be here for. That's what big data is supposed to provide, right? At the end of the day. Um so you have the opportunity to start your own company and I just gotta I gotta ask the question, what what are your cultural values when when you started the business? It's a little bit like, you know, building your own town, you know, creating a family, whatever you want to call it. So what values did you bring to this to this, to this job and and how are you uh how how's what's it like to work there at Grand Round? Yeah, I appreciate that. I mean, I think this is we uh probably more than anything else we've talked about today. This is where I spend a lot of time personally and and you know, and our executive team as we've scaled uh spends a lot of time um Grand Rounds is really proud to be an employer of distinction in the places where we operate. So Glassdoor, for example, which is one way of tracking these things, has rated us the number two best company to work for under 10,000. Um, uh, we won recently, we have a big patient operations center up in northern Nevada in Reno, and we won uh, the best employer in northern Nevada. And we just can't, we pay a lot of attention to these things. Mm-hmm. I think, first of all, we give people a mission that's worth working for. Um, a lot of people who come here have been touched by an experience before, and so they feel compelled not just kind of uh, intellectually, they feel compelled emotionally that this is a good thing to work on. But beyond that, because that won't sustain you through cold nights, beyond that, we pay a lot of attention to the values of how we do work. And so um, we always put the patient first in all of our care. Now, you've probably heard that before, but think about our model. The patient's actually not the customer. So you're actually making a decision right there that it's the patient needs that come before all other needs. And I think that's something that a lot of insurance companies and provider systems have actually lost. They mm-hmm. would say it's the person who pays for it needs to come first. Um, the second, you know, there's a whole bunch of these things. We, we, we talk about it constantly here. Um, another one that I think is, is fairly unique is we talk about being courageous, but we don't talk about that in terms of, hey, let's just flip the table. Let's be radical disruptors every single day. Um, I think there are a lot of dead bodies uh, on the path to healthcare improvement. Um, mostly because they've come in, assume that we can, we can just try to change everything in healthcare immediately, or just do something that's outside of the boundaries of the law. And, uh, and you've been following stories, right? I think the Theranos and Zenefits case studies are illustrative that you can't operate that way. So we talk about taking smart risk. We do want to change, but we don't want to poke the bear. That's kind of the line we use. Mm -hmm. Like we're going to make change we're going to make change within the existing rules because we think those provide adequate headroom for us to do amazing work. That's very cool. Any any free beer and pizza on Fridays at uh, five o'clock? <laughs> yeah, I mean, because that's when I like that. to stop that's by and visit that's companies. Kind of, that's, <laughs> no, you know, but you know, but that, but I know you're kidding. But that's kind of the BS stuff that yeah, yeah. that tries to take place for culture. Yeah. Um, we do, we do have beer here anytime you want. So I'd love I'd love to have you on some really good ones too. Yeah. Actually, some 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 great local craft brews, but. But um, but no, actually, I mean, just as a specific choice, we don't offer meals, and a lot of tech companies here in San Francisco do, you know, fully catered meals. We think it's important people get out, they walk, they meet with different people. They don't just take a plate of something to their desk and sit down. So, uh, so we don't do that, but, but we try to be really deliberate in all those choices. That's cool. That's cool. Well, listen, I really enjoyed your time. I think we ran over a little bit, but I really appreciate you sticking with it and uh, I'll look forward to meeting you soon. I can't wait. 
Thank you, you for it. being on, like sir. Pencil me in on some uh, future West Coast trip. Absolutely. Owen Tripp, thank you for sharing Grand Round's story. Uh, an excellent way to make some real change in healthcare. Happy to hear it here on the Breaking Health Podcast. Steve Krupa, thank you as always for uh, finding and leading great guests and uh, and really revealing and interesting conversations. And of course, a big uh, thank you to our listeners of the Breaking Health Podcast. Thanks for joining us this week and uh, tune in next week for another tale of innovation in healthcare.